You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. On this episode of HEDEX, our 21st episode, we interview Jack Goodman, who is the founder and executive chair of eTech platform Studiosity. Now, of note this week, this is our 21st episode, and we have taken some time out to celebrate what's been a very interesting six months. Certainly has been, Carl. And look, what, what could be more auspicious than um, for us to come of age just as the academic year 2021 gets underway just about in by now in every university in Australia, I think. Um, you know, it's, it's time for maturity in some of our response to the things that are happening in the sector. We were a, a company and a thought leadership practice born, born under lockdown and, and during a time of, of disruption and transformation in higher education. I think um, we're all now needing to grow up and get ready for a very different, mature future. It's been very exciting, certainly very different uh, a period. And when you start a new business, it's, uh, you, you generally have a bit of a plan and you have something of a crystal ball as to how that plan may play out in the last six months has been far from that oh isn't it amazing it's um i I think just about everyone in the world has learned more in the last six months than they will have done in many periods that have gone before and there has been so much to learn about the about the higher education sector and I, i i'm sure you'd join me in wanting to thank our 21 guests that get um that get uh, signed off in this particular episode of of all that they've helped us and the whole sector learn about what the sector's going through and, and what its future might look like thank you to every headex contributor absolutely and I, I love the fact that you know you phrased it you put it really well there that it's been a, a perpetual learning experience. It's been a time of heightened learning and engagement and curiosity and exploration around what's coming and what can we do. What I found outside of the industry that's been uh, contrary to that is some people looking to be futurists or wanting to say they know what's coming and, and often saying, look, we're going to go back to normal on this day or don't, don't go making new plans because we're going to return to status quo. Um, and more often than not, unfortunately, those people are shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, and and that, what I have really enjoyed with our guests and, and the direction we're taking is who knows where this journey is heading. And it's been a really interesting and engaging ride and we're, we're, we're on, it, on it together. Well, we are. And that's a, that's a really nice segue, I think, to the fact that we're 21 episodes in and, and, and Jack Goodman and Studiosity are around 10 years into a journey that he didn't know where it was heading at the time. But uh, to have developed such a su- successful business in being an outsourced service to so many Australian universities in probably when Jack started it all, uh, an area of their core business of supporting the student experience. I think that's becoming a bit of core business that while they might still outsource it, is becoming even more critical to their strategic futures. So it's a very interesting um, signature episode today of Jack Goodman and the Studiosity story. And also represents a different uh, interview style for us. We both interviewed Jack earlier in the week. Why don't we take a listen? We're joined on HEDEX today by Jack Goodman, the um, founder and executive chair of Studiosity. Jack, welcome to HEDEX. 
Thanks, Martin. It's lovely to be here. And it's great that you can join both both Carl and I here today. Um, we, we might start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how did Studiosity come into being? What, what are you doing founding and leading this organization offering these services? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's been a long journey. Studiosity started um, almost, you know, coming up to 20 years ago, about 18 years ago. I, I started it when I first moved back to Australia. My, my, my wife, who is Australian, uh, you might be able to tell from my accent, I, I did not grow up on these shores, but uh, have been here for a long time uh, and, and really started it because I was interested in education technology and had been involved in it um, overseas in, in New York um, in several startups and um, and saw an opportunity here. I think as it turned out, I think I probably started what was has become Studiosity about 10 years too soon. Um, but uh, we began by providing online um, homework programs for public libraries, believe it or not. Public libraries are amongst the most heavily trafficked venues by high school students, and they're there to, to study and learn, and, and we helped them learn online, and we, we licensed some technology, and we did a lot of work with libraries all through uh, metropolitan and regional Australia, so I really got to know the country very well. I traveled all over, um, but over time, those high school kids became university students, and we sort of followed them and ultimately and eventually started to build a, uh, a tertiary academic support platform. Uh, over the last five years, we've really focused almost exclusively on higher education and universities. And we now provide online study support to uh, about 70% of Australia's universities, a number in, in New Zealand as well, and also uh, in the UK and Ireland and, and some other geographies. Thanks, Jack. I'm interested to know, obviously you're very connected and, and close to uh, particular groups of of students, you know, we're in a massive time of, uh, or sorry, I should say a time of massive change. Have you noticed any uh, particular behavioral changes or changes in expectations of students as they go through their experience? Well, yeah, geez, Carl, uh, we have seen a lot of change. I guess, I guess, you know, it's just, just 12 months ago, uh, we were all gathered down in uh, Canberra for the University of Australia conference. And it wasn't really clear at that time, if this was just going to be a pandemic that would affect um, international students or what would happen but on, you know only a couple of weeks later at the beginning of march the campus is all shut and uh had to migrate all their students online so we saw a huge increase in uh in student activity students who use our platform i should make it clear that our customers are are, are the actual universities we embed our platform into their learning management systems and then students who are looking for help help with perhaps getting feedback on an essay or help with a with a mathematics or a, or a physics or a chemistry question, use our platform to get some immediate real time or help around the clock. Um, so we saw a huge increase in usage of the platform. But with that said, I guess I guess the other part of your question might be, you know, how how have we have we seen anything in terms of how students have have reacted? And I think it's you know it's easy to generalize about students, but gee, there there is there is not just one group of students. There's there's 1.5 million higher ed students in Australia and um, and if you have in your mind uh, traditional school leavers, uh, that's one segment of the student population. And I think the pandemic probably affected them uh, more negatively than some other more mature aged learners and people who were who are sort of non-traditional students who, who in many cases, um, through some research we've done, actually found that the pandemic was a positive in terms of their experience with the university. So um, interesting to hear you reflect on the way that um student expectations have changed we we didn't get to go to canberra this february jack like um like the community of, of of australian higher education has for so many february's running 
if we had have been there this February, what, what would we have learned about the way that universities have responded in the last 12 months to those changing expectations? In what ways has that happened? Well, that, that is a good question, sort of, um, you know, it's hard to say for sure, but I, I think there would be a combination of, 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 of some, some congratulations on the speed with which universities adapted to that immediate challenge of delivering all of these courses online in the space of a week or two. Um, and at the same time, also an acknowledgement that they were, for the most part, no, nobody was prepared for this. But, um, but looking back, um, that there was, a, there was a, perhaps an understanding that, uh, that universities really hadn't been necessarily investing in their uh, digital delivery um, capabilities in a way and at a level that is probably what they will need to do going forward. So as they, you know, as we often, I'm often reminded when someone says, well, if you leave something to the last minute, it only takes a minute to do, which is, which is kind of a, a nice way of saying that if you, as universities did wait to the last minute to do what, you know, what they, what they ended up doing, you end up with a kind of half-baked solution too. And so there's a huge amount of backfilling and work that needs to be done to really improve that student experience because students are really now facing and some, and some preferring and some not preferring, but everyone is at some level engaged in at least some sort of hybrid learning going forward. So you said earlier um, that maybe Studiosity started 10 years too early. Um, how, how has Studiosity come of age, do you think, or in what way has the service offering of Studiosity, Studiosity been particularly helpful at the time of, of COVID to universities then? Has, has this been its moment? Yeah. No, it's funny, actually. Our moment actually, you know, began half a dozen years ago. We started solving a problem that universities increasingly had, which was enrolling larger and larger numbers of students, uh, students expecting to have access to su learning support services around the clock, and universities having no capacity to deliver that kind of help. And we built a platform and we had developed uh, methodologies to train subject specialists to provide the support that, you know, that students were looking for and that universities just weren't scaled up to deliver. So they were scaled up to enroll lots of students, but not necessarily scaled up to support everybody at a level and in a way that suited everyone's needs. So, um, you know, we were, we were, we had been experiencing, you know, tremendous demand growth since about 2015 or 16, but, um, you know, I think that the, uh, the pandemic just shown a spotlight on this. And so, uh, that, you know, we, you know, it was almost like a, a little extra, extra boost, but I don't think it, it fundamentally changed the sort of value proposition that we've been all about from the beginning. So Jack, let me ask you this question. I know this is a little bit um, out of left field. So for, for students, and you may or may not have the answer to this, but I'm just fascinated personally. For students that uh, attend university and they go to lectures and go to tutorials and do the standard things that students do, um, there's, a, there's a percentage of those, and I was one of these back in the day, where they had a different uh, learning style or learning um, preference. So for those students that actually learn through uh, listening or hearing more so than visual representation, is there, has anything changed in the last 25 years or 30 years to accommodate learning needs and specific tailoring towards those? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Yeah, look, I think that there are a lot of tools available, Carl, that, that, that can be used and that students have access to, whether universities are really thinking consciously about trying to support students different learning modes or modalities or whatever the right phrasing is, is, a, is an open question. And I think that probably varies enormously 
from you know institution to institution from probably campus and and, and faculty and, and and course to course and just from lecturer to lecturer i don't know that that they that there's a huge amount of thought given to that i do think that one of the things that a lot of students really like about the you know digital delivery when it's done well is that they can control the pace and they can control you know the the visual the oral and the the written components and they can can review things at their own time and 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 when they when they are most best inclined to learn um, it can be used done well that digital delivery can be incredibly powerful in terms of minimizing distractions done badly it's one big distraction so it's really a, a question also about the, the quality of the delivery there as well i keep coming back to that i think it's fascinating i do think the digitization and the move towards online learning will certainly help you know from my own experience i failed the first five subjects in first year at university because of the way it was taught and then I had to make do a hack myself and a workaround, which was I taped every lecture and then on the way home in the car, I listened to it. And from that moment forward, I was an A-grade student. And so yeah. the ability to actually tap into the way people take in information and comprehend it, it, I'm talking about 30 years ago. So surely things have accommodated that to some extent, whether it be deliberate or now that we're in this digital age where there is podcasts and there's audio, you know, audio books and audio recording of education. And it's not just you know, one particular path. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. But I also think that um, that universities have been, um, you know, in many ways, you know, pre-pandemic, surprisingly slow in some instances to recognize this that 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 you that students were looking for other ways to learn, and sometimes you know weren't attending lectures, for example, because the lectures weren't necessarily up to scratch, but um, had found better lectures online. I, I heard that. Ten years ago, from a from a mm. from a dean of education at a university in uh, down down near our office, and uh, he said that that eighty percent of their students stopped attending lectures after the first two weeks. And I said to him, I said, "Geez, does that does that make you scratch your head? What do you think about your lectures?" He said, "Well, I said we were puzzled. What were they doing?" And he said, "I found out that most of the students were watching these online lectures from a professor over at MIT, and he put them all online for free." And I said, "Well, what'd you think of those lectures?" And he said, "I got to tell you, they're amazing." And not only that, they were way better than anything we were doing. I would have watched those. And I said, well, what do you think about your lectures? He's like, well, we're not really sure what we'll do with them. So that was 2010 or 11. And I think mm. that that's probably, I think that might, it might just be the pandemic might be the, the final sort of death knell of that kind of approach to, to lecture-based learning. Because as we often say, the crummiest form of distance education is the last seat in a lecture like that. Mm. Yeah. Good point. So, so fascinating to hear you describe the way that different students have different experiences, Jack, and, and to pick up on Carl's example of how he found a workaround for a university only offering one solution to him. It le leaves me quizzical about the, the fact that Studiosity is, is focused on a business model of a B2B solution, uh, selling its products and services to whole universities for them to use with a multitude of students rather than a uh, a model, a business model based on you directly offering service to the variety of different student clients out there, Jack. Is, there's a good reason for that, I'm sure. Yeah, there is a good reason. Part of it, uh, Martin, is um, we're big believers. And the, one of the core missions of the company that I founded is to make online study support affordable and accessible to all students, regardless of their geographic or socioeconomic circumstances. This is really about improving life chances for students. And you don't really get to do that if you sell directly to students and the students who can afford what you're doing or the students who live in the cities or the students whose parents went to university are more inclined to pay. Uh, you do that by providing 
equity of access to everybody. And, and the best way to do that is to, is to negotiate an agreement with the university such that they incorporate the platform for substantially all students. That's what really makes, uh, you know, makes the, 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 the platform work. It also works when, when academics can say, hey, we have access to this platform. If you need help learning how to write an essay, if you need help with a particular problem and it's, it's eight o'clock at night on a, on a, on a Sunday or it's, it's 2 a.m. on a you know, Tuesday, uh, there are people online who will respond and you'll get, you'll get help. Um, that, that resonates. It doesn't work so well if, um, if students are doing it off their own bat and if uh, some students have access because they can afford to or their parents or grandparents can afford to pay and others don't. So, Jack, can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the way that uh, you interact with universities? So how they identify a need or how you, um, you communicate a need with them and then go about preparing a solution? Yeah, look, we're very much focused on the student experience and putting that, that student need first. So, uh, you know, the universities that we engage with are, have identified the, you know, the, the student experience as a priority. Uh, a place where there is room for improvement, whether that's wanting to address their quilt statistics or quilt data, that quality indicators and in learning and teaching uh, data that is meant to indicate, you know, how, how, how much students are getting out of their university experience. Um, we do this through engaging with, um, usually with deputy vice chancellors on the academic side, education side, sometimes uh, related deans and, and pro vice chancellors as well. But this is very much about figuring out how to support what the university's trying to do with its own staff, but also acknowledging that there are things we do that they will never be able to do and that they don't, they were never set up to do, but that they, that they need to acknowledge need to be done. And part of this is meeting students where they are, not where the university would like them to be and being, um, being supportive and helpful in a non-judgmental and in many times, mostly in an anonymous way as well. So what we're trying to do is to help develop a help-seeking culture for students. One of the big problems universities have, especially large enrollment Australian universities have, is uh, student attrition rates. And a lot of that comes down to students who just don't know how to or are prepared to or are comfortable asking for help, especially at the start of their degrees, but oftentimes right through. What's shocking to me about your story, Carl, is that you took it took you failing five subjects before you fixed your problem. No one at the university, it sounds like, actually said, geez, Carl's not doing so well in this first unit. He hasn't mm. submitted something or what he did submit was terrible. He's clearly not on track, but he's a smart kid. What's wrong with Carl? Maybe we should set up an appointment and try and help him. No, you you hacked it yourself is probably what, what it sounds like happened. And that's yeah. what I think universities often leave students up to their own devices. And that's not a you know, that's not a legitimate way to treat um, a student, really, and I think that's being acknowledged, whether you use that dirty word, the, the, the customer word or not, uh, you know, students, whether they're domestic or international, are, are paying for a learning experience. And if, you, and if you think that just letting them sort of wander through a warehouse and pick things off the shelf, and that's how they're going to go about sort of assembling an automobile or whatever the, whatever the task is that you set for them is sufficient without someone to guide them, you know, you're really, you're really not providing a, you know, a fit for purpose experience. Yeah, I love your point there. The uh, just harking back to that little story. I know it's not much of a story, but it's certainly you know representative of, of the work that you do. There, I had to sort of it was a sink or swim situation. I just you know fortunately found a way to sw to swim while I watched other people sink. You know, there wasn't a life buoy. There wasn't a rope that was tossed out from the host institution or entity to say, yes, we've recognised as a challenge here and here. We can support you. 
Um, in fact, it was complete opposite. It was essentially, here's the bar. If you can jump over it, terrific. If you can't, we'll, we'll, well, off you and go. Back, but back, back then, you know, universities were happy to have students leave because they had to limit a number of spots. And uh, mm. from about 2012 to 2017, we had this demand-driven domestic enrollment system mm. where, you know, you can enroll as many students as you wanted. They wanted to keep those students. And they still, and now with the pandemic and international students being stranded overseas, they really want to keep every student. So, mm. so letting students sort of drop off the perch because you haven't figured out who needs help is just not you know, that's not going to fly at a university executive. So, so what we try to do is to say, look, we've got a platform that will help identify, help students identify themselves as needing help. And those mm -hmm. that have self-identified are more likely to then use the tools and the resources that you've also got that are, you know, campus-based, uh, et cetera. But, um, but if you don't do what we're doing, you won't even know about the students who are struggling. Mm, yeah. That's yeah. really the tragedy. Um, it wasn't, it was papered over by endless enrollments and, and, and a rising tide until 2020. And I think this tide went out very quickly. And, you know, as, as I think um, Warren Buffett, I guess, was it who said, uh, you know, you, you don't really know who's uh, skinny dipping until the tide goes out. And I yeah. Guess we'll out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so are we seeing changes then as with, with the tide going out for universities in how they'll think about their digital infrastructure into the future? That's happening already, Martin. I think people are at least talking about that, whether that's, you know, there's this idea um, a lot of people talking about, which, which I am very pleased and relieved to hear, which is this idea of... Um, of uh, putting that the, the digital at the heart of an institution as opposed to it just being a part of the institution. Um, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a PVC um, who's, who's particularly been talking about this quite a bit in Australia about the digital campus being treated on an equal footing with the physical campuses. We're a long, long way from that being the case. But I think that if you were to do a, a survey, let's say, of all the vice chancellors you, you guys have been talking to, if you ask them anonymously, so no one had to go on the record, but if you ask them anonymously, if they could change one thing out of the last 10 years, what would they do? It's, I, I think they probably all would say, gee, I would, have, I would have invested more in digital delivery technologies and maybe a few less uh, brick and mortar buildings. Um, that's probably where you're gonna see, you, you're seeing you know, strategically, they were really underinvested in all of the underpinning technologies that you need to do this in a in a in a first class, really a world class kind of a way. Um, but when you're when you're you know when you're delivering a digital education, it doesn't matter how beautiful our beaches and how clean our air and water are in Australia. We're competing with the best universities in the world in Canada and the U.S. and the U.K. and everywhere else. Um, and we need to uh, we need to lift our game if we're going to do that. So, so does that mean we've just got a slight move of the, of the dial happening here then, Jack, of a little bit more digital, a little bit less in terms of the physical infrastructure? Or are we going to see different business models? Is, is the fundamental business model of the university going to change through this or change in emphasis? Well, if, if I were running a university, I mean, they wouldn't probably ever want to see that happen. But if, if I were, I would look at the current state of Australia's universities and I would think, gee, aren't we all very much 39 peas in a pod? Um, I would want to find a niche for what, what we do. And I think one of the easiest ways for any university in Australia to do that would be to acknowledge that the teaching research nexus that we all aspire to isn't really such a powerful force anymore in our massified education system. And that if we were to simply separate uh, or 
you know, notionally a, a university into two pieces, the research component and the teaching and learning component. And we really invested a lot more in the teaching and learning experience, assuming that the research is a, is a separate entity and that can be used for whatever purposes it needs. I think that would be powerful. And then you might start to see what a lot of people have talked about, probably since Glenn Davis's book in 2017 about the about Australia's universities, which is universities really becoming um, developing some specializations, but universities getting, you know, really developing reputations for great teaching and learning or, or fabulous faculties in, you know, whatever the discipline happens to be electrical engineering or, you know, the, the social sciences or, or, or public policy. But we don't really have that, um, which is really kind of a shame. We have a sort of Coles and Woolworths model, which is not ultimately really, really compelling. What's compelling is, you know, Sydney and Melbourne and Queen and, and Brisbane as places to live as an international students, let's say. But I don't think that we have, uh, you know, people think about our universities in, this, in the same way as, as they think about some universities in, in other countries as being great destinations for particular types of learning. I mean, one university that has done that, I guess, maybe might be James Cook with all of its, um, you know, tropical and Great Barrier Reef research. Now, that's a really, really you know, powerful way to to build a, a university around that that geography. But, you know, we don't I don't think I don't see enough of that happening elsewhere. But what about a university distinguishing itself on the student experience? Jack? Wouldn't that be great, Martin? Wouldn't that be fabulous? Are one of the 39 P's in the pod going to do that or is it going to be something from outside the current sector? Yeah, look, I think some I think some of the the, the, the current 39 are realizing that there's a lot of room for improvement. We're not, when we're talking about investing in digital delivery, this is not a 5% shift. This is a, you know, probably a 30 or 40% shift in their focus. And I don't think that's something that any of them is particularly probably comfortable with, but it's where they're, they're, they're sort of headed um, simply because that's where the river is taking them. Um, but I think that the, um, and I can see where you're, you're, you know, where your your thinking has been, and having listened to so many of your the wonderful interviews you guys have both been doing, um, are, are leading to. I, I do think that 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 there is great great opportunity for um, for universities to invest more in that student experience. They're going to probably struggle to keep up with the pace of change that, and student expectations. That doesn't necessarily mean that. You know that a that a, that a Google or a Microsoft or an Apple is going to come along and, and eat their lunch tomorrow, simply because um, because they you know they could build a university that would be better resourced and, and have better teaching and learning. I don't know that that's likely to be an, an outcome, but um, but I do think that uh, that they are going to be increasingly be measured against other universities around the world, and we're not necessarily going to be all that um, you know we're not. You know, we're going to discover that, you know, what what was acceptable inside the the boundaries of, of of our nation is now getting measured against a global standard, which is far far beyond, in many cases, what we've sort of accepted is okay, and that's gonna that's gonna put a huge amount of pressure on the sector. You know, something something interesting happened this morning. I was having a coffee with the country manager from Pinterest. And as we know, sort of Pinterest is a very successful tech company, particularly in the States. Now, what's special about Pinterest is that it works because it's so personal. It works because it's so tailored to your needs. You build your own board, you build your own interests, you, you find other people with Pinterest boards are the same, and you grow your knowledge about uh, a particular 
thing in your life that you're interested in in a very tailored and targeted way. Now, I couldn't help but think that was quite relevant to the way students learn in Australia. Yeah, I think it really is. It's an interesting analogy that you, that you draw there, Carl, because because one of the things that we know about education as well, and, and absolutely tertiary education falls right into this, this basket, is that uh, it's effective when students perceive and believe it to be personalized specifically to their needs. They really feel that the institution is delivering something that is that is really quite personal. Now, it doesn't mean that it, it is completely personal and it's not possible to make a you know a degree that's a unique for one one person but that's the the perception that students need to have for a university to really build a strong relationship a strong bond and for a student to have a really successful outcome uh completing a degree and i think that's one of the places where technology offers an enormous enormous potential for universities and it hasn't been leveraged nearly enough yet uh our average australian university these these 39 p's in a pod that we talk about enroll close to forty thousand, maybe more than forty thousand students now i haven't done the maths recently but uh you know forty thousand people that's a that's a pretty big big number in fact that's a huge number that's more than double the size of the average university in the uk for example uh it's hard not to think about large cohorts or you know thousands tens of thousands of students when you're dealing with that sort of volume and i think that unfortunately universities have let the fact that they've now got these huge enrollments uh impact their belief in their capability of delivering uh, personalized experiences for students that's not the case technology actually makes it possible like with pinterest i don't know how they probably got tens or hundreds of millions of users um, you know, Facebook's probably the best example. You know, they've got, you know, half the world on there or something, right? But everyone's got their own Facebook. At least they, they did until the, Facebook decided to, <laughs> to uh, punch itself in the face the other day. But I think they've, they've, uh, they've changed their policy on that. But you're right, Facebook gives a personalized experience to billions of people. We don't yeah. have, universities don't have that big of a problem, but they really need to be thinking, how do we personalize this? We want to have a relationship with Carl. We want one with Martin. We want one with Jack. And it's going to look a little bit different for each of them. And we want them all to have a very strong bond with us. And that's something yeah. that has to be tech driven. There's no other way to do it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In any research that we've done for in anything that explores uh, particular generations coming out or growing up, the, the one thing that they do say is that they feel uh, very isolated and, and not, uh, not a strong sense of community when they enter a university. And I think, like you say, in terms of solutions, it's really hard to, to do that if you're not looking at a digital solution. Well, I'll tell you just, just, just briefly, and I know we've been going for a while here, but one of the things that we're just, we've just been doing, it really is about trying to solve this, um, this personalized you know, relationship building is, is adapting our platform so that, so that students at, universe, at a university can use it to help each other. So really a peer mentoring version of our platform. And that really is about building those personal relationships. Uh, but if you want to, if you want to, you know, if you want every student to have a, a buddy, so to speak, upon entering university, it's a very common method that works well at schools. And we, we you see it in preschools and primary schools and high schools, a way of welcoming people and getting them to have a connection. If you want to do that at a university where you have 13 or 15 or 20,000 first years all starting, you can't really do it unless you use technology. But if you do use technology well, not only can you make it happen, you can get complete visibility around the quality of those interactions. You can see who's enjoying them, who's benefiting from them, and you can also use them to then identify students who might need some extra support, extra help, and those who are likely to go and thrive. So 
um, it's really also about triaging this. But again, it's it is that personalized that perception of personalization. And if it's perceived to be that way, as we know, that that will be the reality too. Mm. Maybe on that note, we should we should both Carl and I thank you for being our guest on HeadX this week, Jack, and wish you and Studiosity and all the students that you're supporting in all of our RPs in the their pods around Australia's higher education system. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. Cheers, Jack. Boy, I enjoyed talking to Jack. I mean, I just enjoy him as a person and his outlook, and it's no surprise that he's achieved what he has. He's got a, a real keen interest and wonderful energy about him. Oh, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really articulate description of someone who started off in, a, in the academic world but has developed a, a very acute sense of business opportunity at times of, of growth and disruption um, and, and, well, particularly growth in our sector 10 years ago, he must be so excited about the opportunities for disruption and what that will mean for, for business and for student experience into the future, I'm sure. Well, I think he balances it really well with that sense of purpose. Like his business, like so many businesses, are successful because his, his foundation or his core, his main focus is so human-centric. It's so personable. And that personalization desire to help individuals is at the heart of all successful businesses. You know, we do a lot with realestate.com.au, which is a, a terrific online portal for, um, for all things property. You know, buy, rent, sell, suburb profiles, what's going on with agents around the place, how do I work out, all sorts of things. And, you know, at the core of that business, it's not how do we sell more widgets or how do we get more advertising? It's what does the end user need to make better life decisions about where they live? And so that the fact that Jack has got a keen focus on helping people, it has to be the, the, the main line or the, the main current through um, behind his success. Absolutely, Carl. I mean, um, when, when in, in the interview we talked to him about, um, you know, why B2B is a, a way to grow the business rather than B2C, his, his answer there about equitable access for all students and wanting to make um, the transformational benefits of education available to all rather than just those that can afford it. I, I mean, there, there could be no clearer articulation of a purpose-driven business than that. It took me back to our very first episode. Can you remember the dim and distant days when Debbie Husky-Levanthal of Macquarie University joined us for episode one of HeadX and talked about the purpose-driven university? I'm sure that the strategic futures of many of our institutions will be really, really closely... Um, influenced by the fact that universities do have such local missions and such high values based um, purposes and communities within them and Jack articulated that well. Yeah he also moved on to globalization and, and the fact that things are changing at a particular pace and, and technology is you know it's no longer a, a how are we going how's it performing but it becomes a very key metric now for all academic organizations and he's also got his plans you know to, to keep growing with the sector. Well, that globalization one is is very significant, isn't it? I mean, he he will have seen a different landscape ten years ago when Studiosity started, um, and we'll see goodness knows how much change over the coming periods for Australian higher education. That as, as we embrace technology more, and as we look towards more personalization that he described, the opportunities then just open up for not only Australian universities in our capital cities to compete with the ones down the road. But the opening up of, of global competition for people that can now experience university education, at least in some form, from anywhere in the world. And this is going to be a huge change in the strategic dynamic that, 
that balance of investment moving to the digital from the physical will will make a significant change in 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 how strategies develop and 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 how their implementation plays out you know what I'm, what I'd love to see as well or get a get a feel for is who's who's moving who's the early early adopters or who's moving quickest in that field you know I'd love to get someone on the show to talk about actually what they're doing and what people can expect that's going to differentiate or distinguish them as being the the technological leader or the tech experience leader um, in a particular time and getting them to put their hand up and put a line in the sand to say you know this is where we're heading and we're going to be here by this this time oh, wouldn't that be um really rewarding and refreshing to hear that i mean jack referred to 39 p's in the pod wouldn't it be great to hear from someone that doesn't think they're a p in the pod out there we'd love to have you on the headex um podcast and i'm sure the whole sector would like to hear from you and it's and the students of the sector would as well you know, the other expression, Jack had another turn of phrase or a quote that he borrowed, I think, from Warren Buffett that I thought was terrific. Oh, wasn't it just? I mean, his, his thoughts that when the tide goes out, that's the only time you can see people that might be inappropriately dressed. I, I, I don't know if the tide's gone out yet in higher education. It's certainly below the high tide mark of funding from a number of years ago. And goodness knows what we're going to see when it's um, reached its lowest point. What, what do you think we're up to at the moment? I think you're right. I think the tide's going out. I certainly don't think the tide went out in 2020. I think the tide's still going out across this year and probably next year. And we'll only see the carnage or the aftermath or who's actually kept their togs on in the pool or whatever the expression might be um, across that period. And that's what's going to determine who's um, who's most successful. You know, something else, Martin, that we probably should talk about is the upcoming interviews that we've got. So we've got the chief data scientist from PwC who won the Australian Data Scientist of the Year award coming on, Matthew Cooperholtz. Um, he's an adjunct professor at Deakin. I know you've got some guests coming. I've got the CEO from uh, REA Group, uh, Asia Pacific Chief Strategy Officer and their HR Director talking about talent and what they expect from the higher education industry and sector in terms of uh, who they recruit, who they employ and why. And I know you've got a couple lined up. Yeah, well, I've got three different current vice chancellors from uh, three different states actually lined up for, for the coming little while. We're also going to go international for the first time. We've got our first um, leading academic, a provost from a leading university in New Zealand that will join us in the next couple of weeks. So some fabulous people doing some doing it tough in the great roles of leadership and some brilliant insights that you're able to bring to us from outside the sector looking in. It's, um, it's good to grow up as, as HeadX and, and be in this maturity to- stage for the future. Absolutely. And I think you're recording this podcast at the moment from the coast. So as we sign off, please do remember to keep your speedos on as the tide goes out. From our 21st episode, thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.